Right. Our New Testament reading today then comes from uh, Matthew chapter 2. I'll read uh, verses 13 through 21. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Egypt. For those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. And our sermon text today is once again in the book of Exodus. Uh, This is Exodus 4, and uh, we'll be reading 18 through 23. Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me go back to my own people in Egypt and see whether they are still living. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for those who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. Moses carried the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. Uh, So last week uh, we concluded this section that we've been working on for several, we're working through for several weeks on uh, the calling of Moses, where Moses encounters God at the burning bush and is called by God uh, to free the Israelites from Pharaoh. We saw that uh, Moses uh, was granted a series of signs to demonstrate uh, God's superiority over Pharaoh. And we also uh, learned how Moses found his identity in God and God's promises. However, the key idea to this entire call passage of Moses was that while Moses' identity may have been linked to Moses' ancestors and their traditions and heritage, God is much more than just uh, the God of this uh, tribal people with their, with their legends and stories. God is a God of promises who breaks into Moses' life with a vision of a world made right because of his passionate, burning love for his people. And I concluded by making the point that God is not simply a God who exists. He's not just a being that's out there that must be discovered, uh, but rather he's a God who reveals and insists And therefore, he surprises and challenges, and that demands a response, not only from Moses, but from all of us. And today, what I want to do as we work through this uh, passage is I want to kind of take a little bit different approach to our text. 
you know, I've talked about this before, but one of the things that is kind of uh, hard, it's weird and challenging about the Bible, especially as we look at the Old Testament, uh, such as, you know, these passages, these stories from Exodus, is um, that they are weird and they're really old. Um, It's really hard to figure out what we do with them. We say they're Holy Scripture and that they should be revered. And we often uh, have a hard time figuring out how to do that. It's all too easy to look at these stories and see them as fables or examples of what to do and what not to do. However, I don't think that this is the point of these stories. These stories are more than simple morality tales or character studies. But that still leaves this question, if they aren't that, What do we do with these uh, stories about ancient Bedouin shepherds confronting Egyptian rulers with staffs that turn into snakes and water turning into blood? Uh, That's not really the world we live in. Now, we've touched on a bit of this so far throughout this series, but what I want to do here is do something a little more uh, intentional, a little more uh, comprehensive, because I think it's a big issue. I think it's a big issue for all of us, for all of us in the church who uh, believe we're supposed to uh, love these scriptures, who want to do something with these scriptures, but are not sure what to do with them next time. We're going to especially need to know this for the next passage. I don't know if anybody of you are reading ahead, but it's a doozy. Uh, I'm a little nervous about it. Uh, But what I thought I would do today was I would take a look at this passage because I think this is a good one to help us uh, answer the issue of what we do. Because Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, so the, you know, the New Testament, uh, that Matthew quotes from uh, this, uh, from these verses in his Gospel. And what I'm hoping to do here is by seeing how Matthew uses this story, and the significance that it meant for Matthew and his readers, we can develop some ideas, some principles about how we move uh, these stories in our own setting. And you might think, okay, well, uh, you know, Matthew's still weird, you know, magi and such. Uh, that's not really our, uh, really, you know, our world either. But remember that the story of the Exodus and Moses was ancient history to Matthew as well. Uh, depending on how you date it, the Exodus uh, preceded the time of Matthew by about 1,200 years, at least. And so that means that Matthew is looking back to these stories that were as distant from his time as we are from the time of the Vikings or Charlemagne. Uh, so, you know, just to put this in perspective, we look at this as all being old, but, you know, to Matthew, uh, it, it would have been, uh, it would have been a similar situation to how we look at, uh, the gospels or the old Testament or anything. So before we get into that, I wanted to, uh, to take a brief look at, uh, our passage from Exodus today, just so we kind of know what we're dealing with, uh, what's going on. Uh, but then I want to see how Matthew looks at that text. So uh, our passage begins with Moses approaching his father-in-law Jethro and asking permission to leave. And Jethro has been really good to Moses. Uh, He's recognized uh, the courage of Moses who saved his daughters from uh, the marauding shepherds. He has given his daughter to Moses in marriage. Uh, He has given Moses a job. Uh, Moses has a position. Uh, And so it makes sense that he would ask uh, courteously to uh, leave, uh, given uh, who Jethro has been to him. However, you've probably already noticed as we read this passage that Moses 
Well, he doesn't quite lie about his mission to Egypt. He does not really give Jethro the full truth. Notice uh, that he says that he simply wants to return to Egypt to see if any of his countrymen are still alive. Now, of course, Moses knows they're alive. That's the whole point. Yahweh has called him uh, to go and free them. Now, we can't know why exactly Moses doesn't tell Jethro the whole story. However, this is my guess. Uh, My guess is Matthew simply does not think it's wise to tell his father-in-law, hey, guess what? Yahweh God appeared to me in a burning bush and is sending me on a mission to Egypt to demand from the Pharaoh the leader of the greatest kingdom on the most powerful kingdom in the world right now to release all of the Israelite slaves who he believes that he owns. Now, oh yeah, and I'm taking your daughter and your uh, grandchildren too. So I think, you know, we can see kind of put in that context why Moses may have been a bit reluctant to say that out loud. Uh, You know, and again, this is one of these places, uh, I think in the scripture we come across where I find Moses relatable. You know, I find him relatable in uh, a a lot of what he does. Moses, to me, seems more like a real person in these stories. And and actually, that's quite interesting when you read a lot of ancient texts uh, that that these people actually seem like real characters and not just kind of like mythological uh, representations, you know, like if you read uh, some ancient literature. But in any event, uh, the phrasing of Moses' request to Jethro is pretty interesting. Moses tells Jethro he wants to see his brothers in Egypt. Now that wording is really similar to a previous passage in Exodus, Exodus 2.11. So you'll remember Moses left Pharaoh's court where he had grown up. Uh, under the care of the daughter of Pharaoh, he leaves the court and he goes out to see his brothers in Egypt. It's the same wording, the same phrasing. Now that attempt was a complete failure. That's why he ends up in Midian. Uh, he's forced to flee. He's a he's a uh, he's uh, 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 he's running from uh, you know the sheriff and getting out of town. However, now it's different. Moses has been commissioned by God. And so when he goes back to Egypt to see his brothers, he's going to do so under God's guidance and following God's plan. So after securing Jethro's permission, God again orders Moses to return to Egypt. Now this seems a bit redundant. I mean, after all, that's what we've been uh, talking about. Um, But uh, there's one new piece of information that is added here. If you remember, Moses fled uh, to Midian because he killed an Egyptian, right? Now here, uh, Yahweh informs Moses that anyone who was seeking Moses for the murder of the Egyptian was dead. And what that means is that in some ways, Moses is kind of like, uh, there's a reset here. Moses' past has been erased. Uh, He is uh, no longer the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, nor is he a fugitive from the law. Instead, Moses comes in uh, only seen as uh, Yahweh's appointed leader of the Israelites who has come to set them free. So Moses loads up his family on a donkey. And apparently he's also, we learn that he's also uh, fathered another child in addition to Gershom. Uh, We'll later learn that that child's name is Eleazar. 
uh, and the text notes that he takes his staff with him. We learned uh, that the staff is going to play a key role with these signs that Yahweh gave to him to perform. But I think it's also significant, I pointed this out last week, but I want to point it out again. Uh, you know, a lot of this story is about power, how power is to be used. And here we have Moses coming not with a sword, but with a shepherd's staff. And that's going to be very significant, uh, the symbolism of that as it goes forward. So the passage ends with a summary of what is to come. Uh, Moses will be empowered by God to perform a series of wonders before Pharaoh in order to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh's going to be re- resist, we're told. We actually told that uh, previously back in, uh, in, in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 19. God had told uh, Moses that Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And here we learn, uh, strangely, that God is actually going to be part of that uh, reason that Pharaoh won't let them go. It says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart, leading to continued obstinance on the part of the Pharaoh. Now, we're going to have to save that issue for later. Uh, you know, my sermons are already a bit too long. So we'll, we're going to table that point about hardening Pharaoh's heart from now. We'll get to that uh, later because it's going to come up again and again. However, the breaking point is going to be the death of Pharaoh's firstborn, precisely because Pharaoh had acted against the Israelites, who God says are his firstborn. Now, In the culture of that time, the status of the firstborn was super important because the firstborn son was the chief heir to the family. Now, I feel I should note something here because there may be people who are not firstborns like me, okay? Uh, There may be people who are not firstborn sons either, you know, that that are daughters. But... I don't think God is endorsing this cultural practice here. In fact, throughout the, old, the whole Old Testament, God actually continually undermines this practice. I think God, but, but God is using this here because it's a way to communicate to Pharaoh and the people the importance to him that this collection of uh, rabble that have been enslaved by the Egyptians are in fact precious and important to him. Now, The question in this upcoming battle between Moses and Pharaoh is, who is the legitimate ruler of the Israelites? Is it Pharaoh or is it Yahweh? Who is it that they serve? And what Yahweh is doing here by using this language of firstborn son is he is basing his claim uh, on his people. He's saying, you know, I feel passionately toward them. I have an emotional devotion to these people. I am claiming these people as my own. They are my heirs. And that is why I uh, have this claim on these people and why I can uh, bring them out. This is why they are mine and not yours. Now, as we discussed in earlier sermons, I don't know exactly, you know, how emotions work for God. Uh, I'm sure that in some way this emotional language is meant to be, uh, you know, what we would call like an anthropomorphic metaphor. But what I do know is that God is not apathetic. He is certainly not being presented as apathetic here. Uh, He wants the Pharaoh, he wants his people, he wants Moses to understand that what he is, the reason he is acting the way he is acting is not just kind of some kind of uh, abstract principle of universal justice, 
but out of a passionate love for this relationship that he has established with the Israelites. So, that's kind of our passage, passage today. It's a little bit of a transition passage here. You know, it's really just advancing uh, part of the story from one place to another. But what I want to do now is use this passage and see how it's used by Matthew. Uh, so our reading uh, from the Gospel of Matthew occurs, uh, you know, this is the, the Christmas story. Uh, no doubt this sounds familiar and probably a little out of place as it's like, you know, 90 degrees outside. Uh, but this occurs during the time of the Magi. Heck, it was probably 90 degrees outside in Israel when the Magi visited. So, you know, uh, but the Magi or whoever they were, whoever they were, were you know, we're not really sure. They, they continue to debate that. They journeyed to Bethlehem to worship and present gifts to what has been revealed to them uh, through some kind of astronomical sign as the new king of the Jews. Okay? And when the, Imag- the Magi uh, first appear before Herod, who incidentally also happens to be the king of the Jews, they ask, hey Herod, the guy who claims to be king of the Jews, where can we find the actual king of the Jews that's been born? Because, you know, the, the stars are testifying that this is the real one. And it's understandable, Herod does not take this news very well. Like every ancient king, it was important for Herod to eliminate any rival claimants. That's what you did if you were king. It's the way you kept order in the world. And this was particularly important in Herod's case because he had no reason to be king of the Jews other than he was appointed uh, by the Romans. Herod was not of the royal family. He was not of the family of David. He was even half, he wasn't even uh, fully Israelite. He was actually half Israelite and half Edomite. Uh, so his claim to rule the, the Jews was very, very thin. Uh, it could only be maintained through power, brutal exercise of the brutal exercise of violent power because he had no real legitimacy. Uh, Herod's solution to this problem that the Magi present to him is to murder all the male babies in Jerusalem under the age of two. Jesus is only saved uh, by this uh, order, by a vision that comes to Jesus' father Joseph, directing his family to flee to Egypt. So let's stop here and think about that. Let's notice the parallels in Jesus' situation with uh, our story in Exodus. We have a flight, uh, we, have a, we have a fight, we have a fight between two kings, Herod and Jesus. The firstborn son of God, Jesus, is threatened. Uh, in uh, Exodus, we just learned, who was the firstborn son? The Israelites, okay? We have a ruler ordering the murder of male babies and a baby who escapes by miraculous means. Sounds very similar to our story uh, in Exodus chapter 2. We have, uh, even crazier though, uh, this baby is saved by journeying to Egypt of all places. You know, he doesn't journey to some other uh, place. He journeys to Egypt. So, you know, we have the introduction again of this, uh, you know, really important uh, place. Uh, in the history of the uh, of the people, the Jewish people, history may not repeat itself, but uh, it, but with Matthew, uh, it certainly rhymes. And Matthew wants to highlight all these parallels to give us the significance of that. Now, 
You will also notice that not only is the situation eerily similar to Exodus, but Matthew at one point directly quotes from our passage today. Uh, An angel appears to Joseph in a vision and directs Joseph to return with his family back to Israel because, quote, those seeking the life of the child are dead. It's almost word for word what God tells Moses when he directs Moses to return to Egypt. In fact, it's even more interesting. Uh, the Matthew was written in Greek, and the Greek wording is very similar to the Greek translation of Exodus in the Septuagint. Uh, so Matthew really, really wants to hammer home this, par- this, uh, this parallel. Uh, not only that, this whole passage of Matthew is full of quotations from the Old Testament. You, you probably noticed when we were reading them. Uh, there's, uh, there's quotations from Jeremiah. There's uh, quotations from Exodus. And there's a quotation uh, from Hosea. And that's probably the most interesting one. And I'll tell you why it's interesting. So if we look at Matthew 2.14, okay, it tells us Joseph rose. He took his child and his mother uh, by night and departed out of Egypt. And then verse 15 says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Uh, As I said, this is actually the prophet Hosea. And specifically what Matthew is quoting is uh, Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Now, what's weird about Hosea 11 verse 1, and what's weird about Matthew quoting this passage is, when you go back to Hosea and you read that verse in context. Okay, so I'm going to read the whole verse of Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It's weird, right? Because, you know, you would think if you read Matthew that probably if I go back to Hosea, what I'm going to read is some kind of prediction about the the Messiah. That, that, you know, God's going to have this son. He's going to be called out of Egypt. And look, isn't this weird? We have this boy Jesus that's being called out of Egypt. That's what you think you would read. But that's not what Hosea, what Hosea says. Uh, he's not making a, Hosea's not making a prediction out of the, of the future. Matthew says that Joseph's journey to Egypt was a fulfillment of the prophet's word. Doesn't seem that way, though. In fact, clearly what you have going on when you read uh, Hosea 11 is Hosea looking back on the history of Israel and reflecting on that history, specifically how God had once rescued the Israelites from the Egypt. There's no future orientation in this passage. The passage from Hosea continues by recounting how the Israelites went on to serve other gods, and therefore God punishes them by uh, sending them into exile. Uh, Now, the way Matthew quotes Hosea is is pretty notorious. This is like a really big difficulty from a lot of people. If you pick up a commentary of Matthew, or if you read any kind of uh, uh, literature about this, this is like a big problem passage. No one knows really what to do with it. Uh, It it seems that what Matthew has done is like taking, well, he doesn't even take the whole verse. He takes half of the verse that seems to serve his purpose better, takes it completely out of context, makes it into something it's not, and then, uh, you know, what are we supposed to do? And that's not even the biggest problem, I think. 
uh, you know, people miss this because, you know, it's all like Egypt, blah, 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 Israel. But in Matthew's story, what we have is Jesus is escaping persecution in Israel by going to Egypt. Egypt's the place where Jesus goes to be saved from persecution, right? In the Exodus, the Israelites are gaining freedom by pers- from persecution by leaving Egypt and going to Israel. So that's weird. And so I think what, what is going on here, you know, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, I mean, we can just say like Matthew probably took it all out of context and he just wants to prove something. But, you know, the fact of the matter is what we learn from Matthew as we read the rest of his gospel is he actually knows his Old Testament pretty well. Uh, it seems uh, it, it's definitely the most Jewish of the gospels. That's why it's my favorite, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know all this Greek stuff, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, what, what Matthew, Matthew really actually knows the Old Testament pretty well. And so what I think the problem is, what does Matthew mean when he talks about fulfillment? Because I think Matthew understands Hosea just fine. I, I think that this is purposeable. But what Matthew does is he's, he's understanding fulfillment in a different way. Instead, what Matthew is doing is he looks at this and he sees the family's flight to Egypt as following a pattern of how God works in the world. Now, we've already seen many examples as we've been studying Exodus of these repetitive patterns by looking at how Exodus uses... Ah, oh, Caden's going away. How Exodus uses Genesis, Okay. Right? We've already seen those patterns. Caden would confirm that for me. Uh, we also see that throughout the Bible, there are stories of wrongdoing followed by exile in which God graciously saves those in exile, leading them back to God's presence. It's a common pattern we find over and over again, repeated on big scales, small scales, in between scales, all kinds of different ways. We see it in the story of Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. We see it in Noah and the flood. We see it in the story of the Israelites in Egypt. We see it in the story of Israelites in the, in the land of Israel. Uh, we see it with the story of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, on both big and small scales, we see this pattern repeated. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, there is kind of an unfinished nature to these stories. Uh, you know, the Torah, for example. So the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, ends in Deuteronomy with the Israelites free from Egypt, but still outside of the promised land. When the Israelites finally do make it to the promised land, when they are finally established, uh, when they have a king and when they have a temple under Solomon, we learn that uh, Solomon uh, pretty quickly squanders all of these gifts that God has given them, leading to a kingdom that is divided. Eventually, the Israelites lose their promised land, first to the Assyrians and finally to the Babylonians. Again, the Israelites face exile. But they continue to cling to the great promises of the prophets of a return from exile and an even greater renewed kingdom. Uh, The Old Testament ends with a promise, but not a fulfillment of those promises. Uh, It depends, you know, you can look at it different ways. Um, I picked, I picked three. Daniel was likely the last book of the Old Testament being written. Uh, And Daniel predicted a 490 year period of exile, 
which incidentally is about as long as the Israelites were in Egypt. Uh, that would need to occur before the Israelites could finally be freed. Uh, in the Hebrew order of the scriptures, the Old Testament ends with Chronicles. And the end of Chronicles has the Persian king Cyrus pledging to allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. They haven't done so yet. The Christian order of the Old Testament ends with Malachi. And Malachi promises that God himself would return to Jerusalem to finally set everything right. But the point is that no matter how you order the Old Testament, it ends up being an unfinished work. It's a story that is in search of a conclusion. Hence, we enter Matthew. Matthew famously starts with genealogies. Oh, don't we love genealogies? But so does Genesis, right? Matthew is playing on that. And in, and in, uh, and in Matthew's genealogies, he has 14 generations, uh, you know, which is like two groups of seven. Numbers are like super important. Sevens are like really important. Then he has another uh, part section of his genealogy. Again, this number 14, two groups of seven. And then his final section with only 13. You know, Matthew wants to know, where is the 14th? And then he introduces the story of Jesus, right? Matthew is saying, like, this story is reaching its conclusion. And that's how I, Matthew is using this word fulfillment. What Matthew is saying is that God is now finishing this, uh, the, the work that he started way back in Genesis in the work of Jesus. And as evidence of this, uh, Matthew is showing us God is again working the same way that he has worked in the past. God is again miraculously protecting his firstborn son against those who would seek to oppress, enslave, and kill him. Preventing his firstborn son from fulfilling his mission of bringing abundance, flourishing, and life to the world. Herod is another pharaoh. Uh, the particulars of the pattern are different. They always are. They've been different as Exodus has used Genesis. Uh, the Bible knows that. Here, uh, for example, Matthew is highlighting the irony that Jesus is going to Egypt to find freedom from Israel. The Israelite leadership held captive by Herod and the Romans have become the oppressors. Matthew knows what he's doing. He does this on purpose to show how crazy things have become. He ends the section quoting our passage from Exodus. Those who saw the child's life are dead. In, in Exodus, Moses is going to Egypt to free the people and lead them to Israel. In Matthew, uh, Jesus leaves Egypt to go to Israel and free his people. It's a reversal, right? However, the biggest difference is Jesus has become the ultimate fulfillment of this ancient story. Jesus is what all the other parts of scripture, all these other stories have been pointing to all along. Uh, you know, it's like, a, it's like one of these, like, uh, you know, uh, prestige TV shows where we have all these multiple threads and we wonder, how do they relate to one another? And then in the final episode, hopefully we are rewarded, you know, with the, with the big reveal. That's what Matthew is trying to say is going on. You know, we've got all these strange stories of liberation. We've got these stories of weird animal sacrifice. We've got these stories of, uh, of, of, of kings and rulers. We've got these stories 
stories of, uh, you know, armies, and we've got these weird prophecies, and we've got lions laying down with lambs, and we've got magic temples with rivers flowing out of it. And what Matthew wants to do is say, it's all coming together in Jesus. That's what he means by fulfilling. Jesus is the ending and purpose of this great drama of scripture that started in the Old Testament. He is the conclusion to the story of the Old Testament. The Greeks, and as much as I hate to admit it, they have a great word for this idea. Uh, They call it telos, right? Yeah, telos. Yeah, telos is like awesome. It's like this great word. Telos is the final cause, the aim, the purpose, the conclusion of everything. What everything prior is leading up to, that's the telos. You know, a good way, uh, like people will say stuff like, ah, the Bible, it's like Christ on every page. I don't really think that that's how it works, but I do think that every page is leading toward Christ. It's leading toward those telos that is summed up in Christ. It's Christotelic. For the early church and the New Testament authors, uh, the Old Testament is a story that was always pointing forward to Jesus. The Old Testament told stories about how God works in the world. And through these stories, the Israelites learned who God was and who they were. The scriptures were always more than just a rule book. You know, we look at the word Torah and we learn that it means law, but that's not really correct. It means like teaching. Uh, It's more than that. It's more than than just law. It was never a rule book. The scriptures were more than just predictors of the future, too. Uh, The scriptures were more than just a legend and an origin story of the Israelites. The scriptures, the Old Testament had all of these elements. It is true, but it was always more than that. Their scriptures were a cosmic story. It was the great cosmic story where God acted and they responded. They had a place in these stories that connected them to the past, but which also pointed toward the future. That was was what's really amazing about the scriptures. There was always a goal. There was always a point. There was always a place where this was going. And it's why when we read the Old Testament and we read the part where we we get to the, the point where it seems like it doesn't have a conclusion, that is actually significant. Because it was always supposed to go somewhere. The scriptures were a drama. And all of the people who uh, read these scriptures and took part in these scriptures and called themselves God's people were taking part in this drama. And according to the early Christians, that drama became a new and final act in Jesus. And the important thing, I think, is I've been reflecting upon this view of scripture. What I really think is important here about viewing the scriptures in this way is that it means that the scripture is embodied. That means that it's not a fortune teller's guide. We don't look through the Old Testament looking for predictions that we sit around and wait for. Nor are the scriptures a list of moral maxims, a way to just live our life in the world. Nor are they abstract philosophy. Nor are they a list of beliefs that we simply assent to. Instead, the Bible is much more than that. It's a work that was enacted in creation and it continues to work through creation and creation. And that means that we too are part of this story. And that means we have a purpose in this world. 
And it is a purpose that is part of a glorious vision because it is, perp- it is a purpose based on a loving God who desires good for his creation. It's a story of a God who passionately loves his people, who looks at a group of enslaved, oppressed people and gives them the status of a firstborn son. And it's this relationship, this love, that drives God's actions in this world. As we have learned, God will be who he will be. But what we also learn is that God is not uninvolved or distant. God is not merely uh, spiritual. He's not merely abstract. Nor, importantly, because of this embodiment, because of him being involved in this world, because he passionately loves his people, God is not arbitrary. God acts according to the love he has for his people and for his desire to see his creation be restored over and over again. That's what grace is about. It's about seeing that God doesn't give up on his creation. He doesn't create it to to just burn. He creates it to be renewed and restored. And as Jesus followers in the church, we have been set free to this. We have been set free from a force greater than Pharaoh. We have been set free from the forces that stood behind Pharaoh and all the others like Herod and the Roman emperors that seceded him. We have been set free, but we have not been set free merely for freedom's sake. We have been set free to live out God's purpose in this world, to be part, to take our part, our role in this drama that God began in Genesis. We have a role to play in this final act of this cosmic drama. And therefore, we also play a part in this great story of Scripture. The New Testament declares that the global restoration has begun. Playing our role means fidelity to what has become before it. Uh, And so we look for the scriptures and we use those to ground themselves. But it also means innovation because the story is moving along. We are in a different part of the story. And so it has always been in the story of the Bible. That's not new. We see that the fidelity, the combination of fidelity and innovation all throughout the Old Testament. The word is living and breathing. And what that requires from us is it requires energy, it requires wisdom, it requires creativity to navigate this path forward. And what we need is all of us working together in the context of community of believers to help guide us toward this final conclusion as we work, uh, as we get on the stage and play our roles in this drama. Together we work out our salvation using the scriptures to guide us toward this final act. And we do this in the confidence of the love of a passionate God who is leading us all to this glorious conclusion where we can at last fulfill our destiny, bringing abundance, flourishing, and life to God's glorious creation that he has given us as his heirs.